Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hi, Ron Coleman here, and thank you, Culminators, for joining me once again. Today, we're going to talk to a fellow named Mike Mathis. Mike, Mike is with the Institute for a Better Internet, for, for, formerly known as the First and Fourteenth Institute, which I'm guessing has something to do with the First and Fourteenth Amendments. There's a lot going on uh, with internet governance, a lot, a lot changing. Congress now is trying to fiddle around with things in a way that I think is very problematic, and I can't imagine Mike doesn't have opinions about it. Uh, and he's going to talk to us about some of the approaches that he and his folks, he's, he is a, uh, a telecom and Silicon Valley uh, veteran. He's not somebody who comes to this without some understanding of what the technology is and, and what the commercial uh, and institutional issues are. So I want to welcome Mike Mathis and thank him for coming. Thanks, Mike. Hey, thanks, Ron. Nice to meet you online. And yes, uh, I'm out here in Silicon Valley, kind of in the heart of where a lot of this stuff is happening. But you grew up as a real American, right? In, in Iowa. That's right. In fact, our institute is made up of three co-founders and all three of us have known each other for decades and, and we're all from Iowa. You're all from Iowa and, and my producer, Jeremy Corr, is from Iowa. So uh, um, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling very flyover country today. There you go. <laughs> but, but on the other hand, you've made yourself comfortable uh, in, in Silicon Valley. So, uh, you know, I, I, you're going to have to justify to us what, you know, that you're still an okay guy. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because when um, we started the Institute for a Better Internet, it was actually triggered by our local Silicon Valley representative in Congress, who is Anna Eshoo, who who you may or may not know kind of a backbencher, I guess, in Congress. And Anna and another member wrote letters to DirecTV, to Comcast, you know, basically all the TV channel companies and saying, hey, you know, you highly regulated uh, companies, why are you carrying this stuff from Fox News and Newsmax and others? And so, you know, being... But she was criticizing middle, them for carrying it? She was asking them to stop carrying it. Yes. Um, not demanding, only suggesting, as right. government officials do. Right. And right. and so that triggered us to, instead of just complaining about it, I went around to my colleagues and friends. And as you know, we are about 45% um, Democrat, 20-something percent Republican, and, and everyone else is independent. But really, you know, independent means Democrat. And even around here, uh, there was a very strong majority that said, you know, that letter was wrong. And so we decided to do a survey, a professional survey of uh, Anna Eshoo's district and Nancy Pelosi's uh, district. And, and we found their very strong majority said, 
you know, government should not get involved with telling TV companies what channels to carry. It shouldn't be financially disincentivizing or incentivizing to carry certain content. So with that, we kind of launched this effort. Um, and I have three, two others. One is he calls himself a blueberry floating in the Red Sea of Texas. So he's kind of similar, but opposite. Um, and he got blocked by Facebook a few times for posting information about um, COVID solutions that he had read about. Yes, exactly. And he's a Lyme survivor. So he's very familiar wow. with alternative medicine versus traditional medicine. Uh, and then Brian Jackson, the third, he has worked inside Google and Facebook for more than 15 years as a senior engineering management. And uh, he was bothered by Amazon. So all three of us came together at the same time. That was when Amazon banned a book called uh, uh, When Harry Became Sally, or maybe the other way around. And, and uh, you know, living here, we're very familiar with um, the whole LGBTQ uh, groups of people. We have friends, but banning that book just kind of pushed him over the edge. So that was what triggered us, those three things, to form this institute and start developing, you know, some ideas around it. And we have actually come up with what we think is, you know, a workable, scalable solution. Now, what year was this done? Wouldn't have been that long. Uh, Anna Eshi's letter was February 2021. That was about when we started it. Okay, so uh, and did you guys do come up with the initial funding yourselves? Or you? We did a we did a lot of secondary research. We were talking to the companies, did a lot of reading. Um, we came up with uh, some of the key parts ourselves. Some of it are pretty, I think, almost standard. You know, some ideas of transparency and things like that. But we evolved it every time we met with people. And I've met uh, quite a number of offices on Capitol Hill. Um, we've met some other organizations that are kind of models for what we propose. Um, and we've been meeting with some of the key companies here, in particular, their sort of public policy and content moderation groups. So how would you, how would you um, compare your organization to... EFF, the, the Electronic Freedom Foundation, who I, you know, all things being equal, they're older, but it sounds like they're interested in the same issues, although I think their perspective might not be yours. Yeah, I think their perspective is, is different. Um, and I'm not intimately familiar with them. A long time ago, I was involved in the privacy battle where companies um, were facing the potential heavy-handed regulation of the government that was going to force some kind of privacy policy. And the Electronic uh, Frontier of the Future was very deeply involved in that. They, uh, you know, the, it was very interesting to me and educational that the companies actually decided to come up with a self-regulated privacy policy primarily out of fear that the government was going to completely screw things up with a government yeah. mandate that would have created a, a problem. But uh, this whole opt-in, opt-out, if you're familiar with that, you know, terminology for privacy and advertising. So um, at the end of the day, they, they created privacy policy, mainly you know, transparency, if you will, to put it out there so people can read about it. Nobody reads it, of course. Nobody reads their EULA or 
terms of service, they just click, click, click to, to get their, their service. Um, but so I, I think we're different because we're focused on the issue in a different way. We're not just focused on one aspect of content moderation, but we're trying to be um, nonpartisan or bipartisan and, and looking at um, what could be something acceptable to, if you will, both sides of the political aisle. So before we get to the TikTok and the restrict bills, which I'm sure that you yeah. have something to say about, um, I mean, obviously it's come to your attention that we're living in a, in a system now where the government has insinuated itself very, very deeply into yes. the content moderation process at the major social media platforms. Were you surprised at the revelations of the Twitter files? Yes. And, and I continue to be surprised, you know, uh, I just, as you said, I, I, I didn't, when we started this, we were a little more focused on what the companies are doing. And now we're much more concerned about, as you just said, what the government is doing. It's, it's uh, insidious and it's, it's a little, uh, you know, in the shadows and not well known and publicized, but you know, the government started off, as you know, focusing on using information as a weapon for overseas terrorism. And then it kind of shifted because of two things. Trump got elected and Brexit happened. And so then there was a remarkable confluence, I think, of the some of the government agencies worried about information and terrorism with CIA, DHS, FBI. Kind of found a marriage partner with the Democratic partner who was party who was so concerned about Trump getting elected. And so they've kind of together, uh, you know, enabled this government uh, intrusion in content moderation, both in terms of people coming from the government to work in these companies, but especially the government influencing and uh, you know, promoting content moderation policies that fit the government narrative. And even to the point where we've learned now, they're not so much worried about just disinformation and misinformation, but something that has been called malinformation, where it's true, it's true information, but it's somehow inconvenient, you know, to the government. Um, and See, and I already, this, so I tell you, I actually thought that that's what misinformation was I, I i know that disinformation was a form of propaganda and i actually wrote a while ago that misinformation seemed to be a, a what we call a um um a back mutation in other words i don't think there was such a word as misinformation until recently i think a person could be mm -hmm. misinformed mm -hmm. but misinformation <clears throat> i think was meant to as a way to make people who who spread information that may not be entirely accurate or may be mistaken or may be inconvenient, sound like disinformation, but not quite accuse them of being involved in disinformation, which is a very affirmative form of propaganda. Mm -hmm. Now you're saying that there's a new terminology, which I had not heard before just now, called malif. And, and who's using that term terminology? Is that the IC? Uh, it came out in Michael Schallenberger's um, ah. testimony to Congress when he was talking about the censorship industrial complex. 
And uh, I, I think you're correct. So disinformation is if I say something knowingly false. And misinformation is I say something false, but I didn't know it was false. It, it was a mistake. But this other category is it's true information. For example, you know, the COVID vaccine doesn't necessarily prevent you from transmitting and getting uh, COVID. It, it might have other benefits, but preventing the, the information that it doesn't transmit, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the virus, that's, that's malinformation. They know it's true, but they want to stop it anyway because they're concerned about vaccine hesitancy or it's just inconvenient to the government's uh, program or narrative. So you obviously watched Michael Schellenberg's testimony or heard it, or at least parts of it, how is it possible to remain nonpartisan in an environment where one political party seems to be extremely comfortable with these developments, and that's the Democratic Party? What do you? How, yeah. do, how, how, how do you guys squaring the circle there? It's very interesting, but particularly because uh, John and Brian, my co-founders, are very active in democratic campaigns and political campaigns and elections. So they just feel like, um, you know, this is very important for our culture and for our country. And we have to, if we present ourselves as right-wing partisan, that you're will not, make it more difficult. Right. We're not gonna get anywhere, exactly. So um, I think we present to the middle and say, look, um, there are bad things that happen with false information. However, as the Supreme Court has said several times, those harms from false information are tiny compared to the massive harm of the government trying to tell us what's true and what's false, because that is absolutely the path to 1984, the path to authoritarianism. And so we, we believe that. I think we're also willing to grant some content does need to be moderated. There's a, there is a, some safety issue. So we don't advocate the wild west. And, and I believe even Elon Musk does not advocate the wild west either. You know, he's saying there are certain types of content that should be moderated, meaning blocked. Some users should be banned, but we shouldn't be doing it based on viewpoint. And we shouldn't be doing it based on the government telling us what's true and what's false. Do you think that the the public agrees with that sort of down the middle statement of the issue that you just described? It's very interesting. Uh, I get excellent response from Republican offices on Capitol Hill. Very helpful. It's been really difficult to get response from the Democratic side. And I think it's partly because the more progressive far left wing, and both parties have their far out you know, wings, but the far left wing is, as you say, very comfortable. They like the idea of controlling information to their benefit. Um, in fact, I would even say when we started and even to this day, we've kind of decided the companies themselves really didn't sign up for this job. You don't, Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, yes, they're dominated by liberal employees, but they didn't sign up 
to be the arbiters of what's true and false, because no matter what they decide, you know, they're trying to serve a large population users. If they're picking true and false, they will piss off whichever side they deem to be, you know, untrue or, or, or wrong. So, so they're looking for an entity or someone to help them get out of this uh, dilemma. However, the government is not the answer, as some people say, because the government, as we just mentioned, picking what's true and false or what to be moderated, that's, that goes against our free speech rights in, in our constitution. I have been struck by uh, the amount of times in the Twitter files documents that Yoel Roth, who is hard to paint as a hero here, and yet Yoel Roth pushes back both against the government, but also against more radical points of view in Twitter mm -hmm. over yeah. the years. I, I found that extraordinary. I, I have a very similar story, which is talking to a, a very senior executive at Google, who I don't want to name, but he said, you know, Mike, we get a literal fire hydrant torrent of requests from the left to censor people, to demonetize YouTube sites, to do this. We get a trickle from the right. And and there's a, re you know, the right sort of tends to believe in more freedom and, you know, let be what be. But he says, we struggle, we try to lean to the right, but inevitably, in the, you know, they sort of recognize just dealing with that torrent as same as you all raw, you, you, you end up feeling pressure like, well, if I accept some of these requests, I'm still leaning to the right, but now I'm accepting some of these requests. And he did point out things that were ridiculous, like the Hamilton 68 identifying a bunch of American Twitter users as Russian bots. I mean, he identified things like that, but either he was overruled or he decided to go along to go with the flow of letting the government kind of influence their content moderation. So I agree. He did some good things, but it's hard to call him a hero at the end of the day. But let me let me rephrase my earlier question, because I understand that you're to a large extent you're talking to people in leadership positions. Um, you know, uh, in, in various branches of government, I presume both executive and legislative, not judicial. Um, if it's judicial, I'd certainly like to know that. But, <laughs> but I, my question is, what do you, th because there has been this partisan distinction in receptiveness to what can only be called government censorship, um, do you think that that has affected the way non-leader, in other words, the 250 million people, the 300 million people in this country who are not children and who are not elites, but are, you know, are regular Americans who expect, who don't really have the, the, the greatest concern about privacy, for example. I, I think that's more of an, of an American, of a, a European obsession, um, you know, but who do assume that they can say what they want. Uh, but, but I have my impression in, as someone who's very involved as a user in social media is that a lot of people on the left, and I don't, again, I just mean regular users, have taken a cue from the leadership of the Democratic Party and said, yeah, this is the right, 
you know, heavy handed content moderation and government involvement in uh, restricting hate speech, even, you know, not not, not only just bad, you know, inf- misinformation or malinformation, but feelings protection is is fine do you, do you agree with me that that has become yeah you know- I, i'm very worried about that um and i think it comes from our education system you know there's so many e- examples i think it's now seems like it's the majority of university campuses are teaching our kids that um some speech is so harmful and scary that it should be censored so the whole idea of, um, the, you know, for example, uh, you know, Skokie, Illinois, right? That, hey, this is terrible, it's awful, but it's their freedom of speech to let, you know, these terrible people have their march through the middle of, of Skokie, Illinois. So uh, I, I do worry about it a lot. And I think it's important to, and, and we need to do more of this ourselves, but not only talk to the leadership, but we have to get the message out that says, you know, for the government to start censoring based on what's convenient to the government is not a good thing. And and we have to engage that discussion because there's a lot of very uh, persuasive people out there talking about how censorship is good and censorship, it makes things better and, and safer. and. I think that is just completely incorrect. Well, there's, I, you know, this, you use the word safer. Uh, you know, there has been a very purposeful uh, disinformation campaign that has been undertaken over the last decades of associating words that hurt people's feelings with violence. Yeah. Or, that's or, right. or, or with a, or with a reduction in, in safety. And everyone understands that hateful words can lead to hateful actions. But the premise of the First Amendment was short of, hey, wow, look, there's an Irishman, let's beat him up, which is a very, very direct and clear and immediate call to violence. That pretty much anything else that people say should be tolerated. Now, on the other hand, historically, it hasn't always been tolerated. And certainly before, before the incorporation of the 14th Amendment to the states, many states had very active anti-sedition laws. And of course, Eugene V. Debs, you know, during wartime, there's been a lot less tolerance uh, for dissent. But, you know, it's very ironic because the Supreme Court has really come so far and on and continues to be almost in an absolutist vein when it comes to free speech. Um, but it doesn't seem that any other institutions have followed them. I mean, you know, we, we talk about political leaders and we talk about the general population. There was a time when you could count on major media and academic organizations, and you've already addressed the academic point, the newspapers, they're fine because they're, they're not they're, they're not in danger from government censorship anymore. They see the enemy as the right and Donald Trump and whatever forces of dissent he unleashes. Right, right. Well, the mainstream media, um, 
it's kind of benefited from this. You know, for example, Google made a very um, consequential decision in about 2018 where they changed some of their content moderation policies, particularly for YouTube, and said, we are going to rely on, air quotes, authoritative sources. Now, what they ended up doing is relying for COVID on the WHO. They, they literally rely on authoritative websites and they've designated those as sort of being long-standing media. So they, they trust the New York Times, they trust the Washington Post, they trust these kind of uh, CNN. But younger, newer, typically right-wing media are by definition, according to Google, not authoritative sources and can be discounted. And there, there's just a, so I think the, the media goes along with it. And I, and I think uh, the media has just changed. And partly it's because the media has become so fragmented where instead of having Walter Cronkite and, you know, two or three newspapers having a business just telling us what, what's going on from the center point of view, re really reporting news and being journalists. Now, you know, they're fighting over audience by moving further and further away from the center and toward getting clicks and views and things from the far right or from the far left. And so now you even see very institutionalist, like, like the New York Times has just moved so far to the left that any, you know, reasonable thinking person can recognize that the New York Times has, has lost its credibility and has become a propaganda arm for the Democratic Party or for certain government narratives. You know, it's very interesting when you put the front page of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times on your breakfast table and look at the same story. And you, you, it's like Venus and Mars. They're just so, so journalism yes. has just fundamentally changed. So I understand that you at the IBI have uh, formulated an approach something mm -hmm. not just let's talk about this not let's worry about this but here's here's what we think is the way forward can you just am i correct is, am i yes, am i informed, yeah. am i informed correctly yes so we think that by, is by, what is it by an authoritative source yes very good so we we think it makes us a little unique because when we do approach a people on capitol hill and other like wow, this is actually kind of refreshing to actually have a proposed solution. Because normally when you read the papers or the web, there's a lot of people commentating and complaining and not happy with things. But so we kind of tried to take the next step. And one of the key parts of it is to have a view, a philosophical view that says the test for content moderation should not be true or false. The test for content moderation should be, is it harmful or not harmful? And when you make that leap, it actually makes solutions um, much more workable and much, much more scalable. You, you can still deal with safety issues, neutrality issues, all that. But when you look at all these examples, TikTok or you know, COVID or hate speech, all this stuff, if you start focusing on, I'm not trying to decide, is it true or false? I'm trying to decide, is it harmful or not harmful? Is it imminently harmful to a person or group of persons? Now, it turns out there's a vast group of people who are very trained and capable of assessing that. And those are arbitration judges. 
and there, you know, and there are other entities that use this group, for example, uh, for financial um, disputes between investors and their wealth advisors. They rely on an organization called FINRA. FINRA is not the government. It's not the industry. It's funded by the industry, but it's this kind of non-government entity that provides independent appeals for investors who feel like they were somehow cheated or lied to or whatever, whatever the dispute might be. So we use FINRA as a model. So I spent a fair amount of time talking about FINRA, understanding you know, what they do and the scale of FINRA. And it turns out to be remarkably, you know, something that's remarkably close to what could work in this online media environment. Is it your understanding that, that both plaintiffs and defendants, advocacy organizations, feel that FINRA is a successful compromise? In other words, they both complain about it. That would probably be the, the best mm -hmm. test. Yeah. So there are some who complain that FINRA uh, has been captured by the industry, you know, regulatory capture, the way we look at the FDA being captured by pharma, for example. But uh, FINRA hasn't been in the news in terms of like lots of controversy. I think there are complaints on both sides. FINRA's governance is very carefully structured to represent both the industry, but also investors. And so they, they, they specifically define how the board of governors of FINRA are selected and, and what they do and, and how the funding works, which is basically a fee charged to the industry based on the size of the company in the industry. And the government has no say in the funding and the government is not able to hire and fire people at FINRA and neither is the industry. The industry doesn't get to hire and fire, you know, people at FINRA as well. So it is, you know, FINRA may or may not be perfect, but it is a model for how you could set up something to deal with disputes and appeals between users, content creators, and these platforms. Well, you're onto something very important though, which is, the very idea of some sort of dispute resolution and transparency is something that's absolutely lacking from the system now. And I, I have argued that if if I were to if I were to pass well, more acutely, I've argued that as a matter of consumer protection, I think that that the fact that there's no accountability and that your your account can be yanked with no explanation is a is a um, a deceptive practice. But even mm -hmm. if you don't want to agree with me that the FDA Act and the state's little FDA acts would should prohibit this, or that or that they certainly would um and give the authority to to uh, state or local level regulation, if I were to come up with a bill of rights for the internet, one of the things that I would really focus on, and in many respects, it, it cures everything else, is what you guys are talking about, which is if someone has a beef, if someone's been burned or believes they have, they don't just get the door slammed in their face. Someone has to explain. Someone has to answer. And if you destroyed my business, <clears throat> and I can demonstrate that you did so for no good reason, I should have some recourse. But let's not That's even right. come up to that, because the vast majority of people just want their accounts back. They right, just right. their accounts back, and there's no 
you know, there, there's a this utter lack of accountability. And all of a sudden, it's hilarious how many liberals have become free market advocates. Oh, it's a private company, you know. Well, private that's right. They've been regulated in this country for well over a century in every respect. Right, right. Well, there's a, a legal issue or, or terminology, which uh, you're very familiar with, you know, whether these platforms are common carriers or not. And you know, you look at the definition of common carriers, you know, for example, Verizon Wireless, they don't get to turn off your service because of something you posted on Facebook, you know, last night, or your electric utility, or airlines, they don't, so they don't get to pick and choose their customers, simply because of no reason at all, or because of something unrelated, you know. And I think the, the notion that these platforms get to pick and choose the users and they have their own First Amendment free speech rights as Twitter or as Meta. or They do have First Amendment rights as entities. However, when you become a monopoly and you are now the conduit for our country's, if you will, village square or town square of communications. And as you say, many individuals, many citizens depend on these monopoly platforms to communicate. First Amendment rights or for their business to you know, be able to express whatever it is they want to express. And those rights start to supersede the private entity rights of these platforms when they become monopolies and effectively common carriers. So part of our proposal is similar to other laws in the past. We say, well, the common these these platforms, they can opt in to the mechanism that we've set up that I was talking about before. And if they opt in, they continue to receive Section 230 liability protections. If they choose not to opt in, they can they can opt out, but then they will not necessarily get the benefit, which has been granted to them by Section 230, the, the Law of Telecommunications Act of 1996. So there is a mechanism there that says, um, you don't have to do this. But if you want to continue to moderate in a way without transparency, without safety, without neutrality, and without independent appeals, you know, you're going to lose this, uh, you know, the liability protection, which they, they, they very much rely on today. Are you getting audiences with the management of the, of the, of the major, uh, you know, I mean, what are we talking about? Google, Facebook, and Twitter. Everything yeah. else is secondary. TikTok is kind of out there. It's in a, it's a different situation. I don't think yeah. that's really their problem. Right. We are meeting with them, I would say, mainly with their um, public policy type folks, not with the executive. You know, We'd like to get there. And I think partly it's uh, as we get some traction on Capitol Hill or if there's some traction with this proposal, you know, in terms of public awareness, then I think those audiences will come because we actually have benefits for those platforms. We actually will reduce their litigation costs, if you think about this, because if, if people are directed to take their disputes to this um, arbitration mechanism, which may or may not take their case, you know, if you're absolutely a child pornographer, they may or may not <laughs> listen to your appeal. But if you have something interesting to appeal, they'll take the case and then that will happen. But if you're a certified platform in the same way, lots of other industries, you know, people are certified. 
then basically the arbitration is, did you follow the, you know, your rules that you transparently publish? And it doesn't necessarily lead to lots of litigation. It just leads to um, in financial incentives to improve your transparency and make sure you follow those guardrails. If you start veering outside the guardrails, yes, you might suffer some penalties, but then you deal with your employees and you solve the problem and you, you know, you work within this mechanism. So going back though to the beginning of our conversation, is it possible to get traction on Capitol Hill when pretty much only one side is interested in reform? Uh, it's very difficult. Um, so there is definitely traction on the one side um, and, and interest. And we regularly, about every three months, I go back there. Um, you have any allies think, in the Democratic caucus? Uh, we've talked to a few, but I wouldn't call any of them allies. I think they all keep their head down. It's, you know, you can imagine it saying, yes, this sounds like a good idea, but don't tell anybody <laughs> that I said so. <laughs> Uh, because that they have political consideration. So honestly, my sense is this is all preparing the ground and potentially after the next election, there might be more possibility for something to happen. Because you, you also commented about talking to the executive branch. Um, there's not a whole lot of people for us to talk to right now in the executive branch on this you know topic because so many parts of the executive branch have been caught, you know, directly trying to influence content moderation at these companies. Um, so I noticed one of one of your previous guests, Brendan Carr, is someone that I think is, is a very interesting person to um, you know talk to. And I think his ideas are are very consistent with our ideas as well. Yeah, actually I you know I should have him back on because so much has happened since I spoke to him. So much is unbelievable. Um I wonder whether um you know in terms of that traction do you ever in these conversations even if they're not for public consumption but don't people on the left realize especially after elon musk took over twitter that things could change <laughs> It's so interesting you say that. I, I kind of knew you were going there. So I, I just wrote an op-ed um, that had a title just like that. It said, hey, uh, lovers of censorship, watch out. You know, you really want the son of Donald Trump to be the person deciding content moderation? I mean, things change every eight years. I mean, historically, we don't have one party control forever. It just things just ebb and flow. So when things switch to the other side, do you want the other side to be making, you know, all these uh, strong, influential forces to, to moderate content in the way that they want? I well, mean, remember, though, that a lot of this started, as you pointed out, after the election of Donald Trump. In other words, that's right. You can you can you can have your president, you can have your house and your Senate, but someone other than elected officials actually implement policy. And right. you know, I, I what what scares me is that the Democratic side feels that whatever happens in a given election, they ultimately have control over the deep state. 
the organs that I you, you can yeah, yeah. say well, part the of organs it. that make things happen. Um, and you can't really argue with that except on mere principle. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we're t- if we're talking about power, the mere principle doesn't seem to to be an issue. Yeah, and it's so part of that article was a little tongue in cheek, and I was pointing out examples where the new press secretary was Carrie Lake, <laughs> <laughs> and then you know exactly what Jen Psaki did. You know, Carrie Lake did the same thing. You know, in 2025, and the new secretary of education was one of your previous guests, uh, Christopher Rufo. And now Christopher Rufo is going to be telling Twitter what kind. So it's just to try to get people to think more creatively. The new FBI might be, who knows, Jim Jordan or, <laughs> but, you know, because it somehow got people to think more. It wasn't that long ago, um, Ron, when it was the liberals who were being censored, right? It was uh, in the 80s, you know, burning flags or Robert Maplethorpe. I mean, it was totally the other way around, and people just can't remember that. How about that Super stuff? Gore, ex yeah. wife of Democratic Senator Al Gore, testifying before Congress about the, the need to, to, you know, to, to censor in some in, in, to some extent uh, music because of the effect it was having on the young folk. Right, right, exactly. So I, I mean, I do think there is a sense that the worm will never turn. Uh, on one side, and I think that 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 makes it very difficult to, you know, to argue for these things. And I I think you're you you know, you have to appeal to to a large extent. I I think that really the leverage comes from your ability to. I mean, certainly if you get half of the leadership, political leadership in the country, that's a hell of a good start. But if you can get buy-in from a so, you know, for, from a social media company. See, for, the problem with Google is I don't think Facebook, the way they're burning through money, might be an irrelevant question anyway, but Google has so much money and makes so much money that I don't think they're really incentivized by reducing litigation costs. Yeah. Well, uh, I think they're incentivized. They're they're worried about heavy-handed government regulation. Exactly, I, and I think that's the. I think that, that that would be the angle is to say, listen, we think there's an, a, an approach here, because it it you know it certainly is possible that a Republican Congress could emerge mm-hmm. and a Republican White House could yeah. emerge and we could pass something that changes things radically for you guys. But the, the other thing that I believe is an even stronger motivator for Google and the others is the threat of antitrust. And uh, you do see these government officials today saying, you know, we'd like you to please ban or censor this content. We don't like. Oh, and by the way, uh, we're thinking about antitrust. Did, did you know that, that there's a conversation going on? on it? So it's their way of not coercing, but suggesting with a lot of pressure to please do what we ask. Which which is a matter of constitutional law. If if that's a form of coercion that is that is you know unlawful. And the question is, you know, how explicit is the threat and how is it a threat or is it just listen, I'm a, I happen to be on the Commerce Committee. We we do uh, it, it's our bailiwick to talk about antitrust issues. It's also our bailiwick to talk about your industry and we want to keep it keep it growing and keep American leadership there. Yeah. So I think I think the answer to your question is it, it does look like uh, 
you know, pessimism is warranted in this sort of bad, <laughs> you know, but we try to take an optimistic approach. I think if we can get the companies on side, the companies regulate, but realizing that this approach is actually beneficial for them and they don't want to be sitting there arbiting true and false and they don't want to be waiting for the government to tell them, you know, what to do. They'd like to get out from under that and go focus on their business. Um, so that's one thing. And then I guess the other is if the executive side changes, maybe there will be some horse trading you know, process that says we can get this enacted, you know, in the fullness of time. And in the meantime, we just, you know, look if if the censorship advocates kind of get out over their skis in some ways, I think they have gotten way over their skis with just sending emails saying, please censor this. I mean, it's it's amazing to me how they didn't even bother to hide it or anything. They just said, we I, are and censored. that's an example of of of, of, of the, uh, the the tactical error uh, of despising your adversary, thinking nothing will ever change and, and you you will always be in charge. But I actually thought when you said that they've gotten out over in front of their skis, that you were going to refer to those two bills, which I think we you know, are you know we can end on here, uh, or the, I guess there are more than two bills at this point. The, the bill that started out being talked about as a banning TikTok, which is preposterous. You, there's there's mm -hmm. no constitutional oh, yeah. uh, permit for Congress to decide what you can have on your phone, um, unless you're in the military, if you work for the government using government phone, fine. But what turns out. Uh, behind the rest of the the nose of that camel is this massive uh, permit that would be given to government bureaucrats to censor to to break into in, in, into uh, uh, virtual private uh, networks. Uh, you know, yeah, a hundred percent agree with you. And in fact, I think one good example: any Republicans who are thinking about supporting that Restrict Act, think think about News Corp. I mean, it's a foreign company. I could, it's so vague. Like what does the executive branch gets to decide this is an adversary? Like how do they decide? There's no, you know, I can easily imagine all sorts of other abuses of that power. Yeah, in, Iran is, is, is officially an adversary. Meanwhile, the Biden administration just gave them another X billions of dollars. I mean, is China an ally? Of course not. Is China an adversary? Seems to depend. I mean, right now things with China are kind of rocky, but you know, it's hard to imagine that these bills are intended to uh, address Chinese influence. It it almost seems like these uh, state agencies have figured out. Well, we kind of know how to control Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, and Google. These TikTok, this one is a little harder to control. We don't know how to force them to moderate content the way we like. And TikTok, you know, their algorithm is very distinct and different, which you may know. But, you know, everyone else does what we call the echo chamber, right? They feed you what you like. Instagram, you start clicking on a certain category of topics, they give you more of it. That's the simplistic, you know, view. TikTok is very different. They just randomly pick some kids dance or some sexy content or some controversial content trans content whatever and then they just decide let's just blast this out to 50 million people and it turns out to be 
very addictive because now all these kids are thinking they're, they're going to win the lottery. They, they're going to go viral with their little dance or whatever. But it is kind of insidious that they're able to then insert content. You know, so I, I don't like TikTok. It's like a lot of things. You don't have to like the content, but you have to still say, look, you know, we want information. We, we have free speech, right? So they're, they're an entity. And, you know, there are problems specific to TikTok being controlled by the Communist Party of China, which is a little different. You know, our, our companies, U.S. companies do similar things overseas, but it's not the U.S. government. It's, it's these private companies sucking up data and serving up content based on, you know, recommendation algorithms. So maybe, very similar. Maybe. Yeah. Not, I'm not <laughs> sure. Maybe. Maybe. It's a good point. Mike, we could go on all day, I think. If people want to find out more about what you guys are doing, how would they do that? Uh, so we have uh, better internet uh, or fourbetterinternet.com, the number four, fourbetterinternet.com. Uh, okay. Um, but as you mentioned, we're, we just recently changed our name. Uh, actually, it, we're, it's in an effort to present ourselves as more nonpartisan. We felt first and 14th, which does refer to the amendments, just kind of, if you talk about the Constitution, somehow people think you're a right winger. So I don't know how that happened, but. Wow. Is that crazy? It's well, crazy. What, what happened is when the ACLU stopped talking about the constitution uh, and yeah. you know, groups like that stopped talking about the constitution and started talking about other interests, better internet.us. Okay. And by the time this comes out, we'll be able to throw up on the screen something uh, with, with the yeah. new domain yeah. name. Terrific, Mike. Exactly. Thanks Thank so you. much coming on enjoyed it let's stay in touch thank you bye hey thank you for listening to the coleman nation podcast don't forget to subscribe on apple podcasts or your favorite podcast app if you like the show please rate it five stars and leave a review for more information please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com that's coleman-nation.com or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.